This is Vincent, and this is Students of S.H.I.E.L.D. Weekly Reviews, issue number five. Yo, welcome to the show, the Students of S.H.I.E.L.D. Reviews show, every week reviewing the shows, actually the comics. You're watching the show, actually you're listening. My name is Vincent, and I'm joined by my hosts, Daniel and Mike. We're moving on to this week's books, but we're always going to start with that retro book, Avengers Volume 3, number 64, which is what we voted on last week at the end of the show. It's Jeff Johns and Ivan Reese on the Avengers, which is always like a crazy thing because Jeff Johns is a DC guy. So is Ivan Reese. Yeah, I was going to say that whole team, we know them for, for the long run stretch of Johns' Green Lantern run. And Ivan Reese was kind of the main guy up leading up to Bright, uh, Blackest Night and then into Brightest Day, but... Uh, I've always been a big Ivan Reese fan. I think that was his peak. Um, I still enjoy his Superman stuff here and there, but I'll say this is a very, I think, young Ivan Reese here because um, it looks very, very normal and kind of almost house style almost, even though I kind of felt like that's always been Ivan Reese's style. But this issue is a spotlight on the Falcon who has joined the Avengers and he's just tailing uh, Henry Peter Jirich, uh, the kind of nefarious government liaison to the Avengers who always gives them trouble. And he's just kind of tailing him and they basically end up having a conversation um, where it's juxtaposed with Falcon's a hero who's going to do what's right. And Henry Peter Jairich is going to be a government stooge the whole time. And even like coming out and addressing that that Jairich only wanted Falcon on the team because of his ethnicity. But, and then for that, like Falcon just cold clocks him. But as they have their discussion, the children neighbors of Jairich are kidnapped by the Scarecrow and uh, Falcon stops them and basically says, hey, I'm going to be around your neighborhood. The Avengers are going to watch you and uh, I'm going to save the day and make sure and show that these people are never alone in New York because the Avengers don't just take on the big threats they take on the small threats too. I thought this was a pretty good issue. I like the Falcon a lot. So just fooling back and having him be in the spotlight for this was pretty, was a, I thought pretty cool. But what did you guys think? Yeah, kind of a lot of the same what you mentioned. Um, <laughs> this run is on my bookshelf, and I still haven't gotten to reading it yet. And this uh, issue, isolated from the rest, kind of makes me really want to go put that up to the front of my reading list because it was pretty good. I mean, I like I like the focus on Falcon, like you said. Um, I think he's a good character, kind of underrated a little bit, so... No, I think it's I think he's really really a solid character and it's cool when people throw him more in the spotlight cuz he at one point as we know he was like the co he owned the title with Captain America it was Captain America and the Falcon. It wasn't just Captain America for a good portion of time. So mm-hmm. and definitely I'm excited for him to take over as Cap of the MCU and stuff like that, but I thought this is a really good issue kind of showing who Falcon is and who Sam Wilson is. Yeah, it it handles his backstory very well. I think Ivan Reese is great. There's like literally like three full page flashes of the Falcon. Yeah. And I mean, technically the Falcon got his first solo series like two years ago or something. And I don't know. No one was that hype on it. Well, I mean, he had solo series as while he was Captain America, obviously. But I mean, this is definitely like the key issue for the Falcon. And so the whole like um, divert the his beef with Jairich and like stuff that's referenced here, that goes all the way back to Avengers 181. It was more, I mean, Jairich was acting, I think, on, on the directive of the government when the Avengers were more connected to the government, but there was literally a diversity quota. And that's the thing. Fam- 181 is the famous George Perez, I think it's George Perez cover, where, or maybe it's Byrne, where there's like 100 Avengers on the cover. And it's like, no, they, there can only be that many, few of you. And it, it was cool putting up against Scarecrow. I think it's an interesting fit. The reference to Yellow Jacket and the Wasp going to Vegas, that's Avengers 71, a few issues from now. And in between is the Red Zone arc. And we see the, the lead into that at the end here with Del Rusk. Amazing Spider-Man, number 31. So we pick up in this issue with the mysterious character, which name escapes me again, still talking to Norman in the... It's um, Kindred! How do you not know? He yells it? it all the time! Oh, okay, Kindred, whatever. Anyway, he's still talking, and we're still in like this kind of like flashback sequence kind of thing where Peter's fighting 
the Carnage, Norman Osborn-ish thingy. I don't know what it really is at this point. I'm, it's pretty much Norman, but it's not. And throughout this book, again, we're getting more flashbacks from the original, like, kind of like Death of Gwen Stacy era, you know, Harry using drugs um, era of the Amazing Spider-Man back from the 1970s. So that's kind of cool how they're using that and especially honing in on the relationship between Norman and Harry during the time when Harry is going through his drug withdrawal and drug abuse stuff. So I thought that was pretty cool. You know, throughout the whole issue, we're kind of getting that flashback between that and the current fight that's going on between Peter and this like carnage norm symbiote type of thing. And again, we're getting more kind of, we're getting more backstory towards why Peter got the symbiote in the first place in secret wars. There's a mention in this issue about how he wore, how he went to, you know, put on, like he wanted to wear the symbiote suit so that he could protect himself and protect the people he loved so that the thing that happened with Gwen, you know, her being tossed off the bridge by the green goblin would never happen to anyone else again. So I thought that's a little interesting. It kind of delves a little bit deeper into what we already know about the symbiote. And um, this, uh, this issue probably is my pick of the week just because there's really not a lot of other good books I read this week. But yeah, I think that's pretty much all I really have to say about this issue. The art is still amazing. I thought it was a solid issue. Um, Ryan Otley goes crazy with his fight scenes, and they're beautiful. They have so much impact. Spencer's writing here um, continues to be amazing, um, not for pun intended, whether you want it to be or not. But I love, like, it, with the juxtaposed to the fight through Peter and Norman's history, the the kind of the, the, the great back where, like, the bit great backlogging of this is Spider-Man always gets up, and you keep hearing that as he's getting... Th- punch down it's like get up get up and box is getting bigger and finally spider-man stands up and beats carnage um or like the norman the norman carnage whatever you want to call it i thought it was great i love everything that we're going here with this i'm very intrigued to know what who kindred's trinity is going to be and dan you mentioned the art has been good but i think it possibly is going to maybe be better because in two weeks when we kick off the 2099 arc we're getting uh, patrick gleason Oh, yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that. I'm looking forward to that, for sure. So, Amazing Spider-Man continuing to be firing on all cylinders. Yeah, I really like this issue. I'm interested to see where Kindred goes. Um, the obvious suggestion within here is that it has to do with Harry. And there's all kinds of theories pointing around. Um, and there's other ideas in, in the water, I suppose. We read Batman's Grave, number one. Um, this is Warren Ellis, Brian Hitch, Kevin Nolan, and Alex Sinclair for a 12-issue maxi-series. Kind of as high a profile creative team as DC can do right now. Um, short of putting, I guess, Frank Miller and Jim Lee on a Batman book again. So it introduces this very strange concept, which the title gets its name from, where Bruce already has a grave for himself next to his parents which is sort of weird, but there, there's a couple coming home from a movie. They basically went out to see the Joker, and they're accosted in an alleyway, but Batman saves them. They almost get Joe, Joe chilled. And there's a the, apparently there's there's so many 911 calls on this particular night that the cops have to put people on hold. And that just shows like the ridiculous circumstances of Gotham City. And there's a dead guy in an apartment and he, he's surrounded by newspaper clippings and stuff of Batman. Um, but there's otherwise no evidence there. And so Bruce kind of scans the area, calls it in, and then goes back home to, to think about it, finds Alfred drinking, and Alfred basically gets into, an, not an argument, but talks to him, like basically just going back and forth on concepts of vigilantism and, and wealth and everything like that. It's kind of like the whole, like, normie, like, oh, Batman could just throw his money around and save Gotham. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's, there's more depth to it than the standard arguments like that. And Batman has an interesting line, I thought, where he says, I can't think like a killer, only a victim. And then he proceeds to do that. He basically goes into this very deep role playing 
like putting himself in the shoes of the victim as opposed to like in the shoes of a serial killer. And then he goes back and I guess the killer is just hanging out under the floorboards or, or it's another corpse. I don't know. It's, um, yeah, he's I, hanging out under the floorboards. He's still alive. Yeah, I didn't. But, like, I didn't 100% understand, like, what Bruce pieces together to fully figure that out. Like, the whole, the the puzzle to it, I, it didn't 100% click to me. Everything here, I mean, other than that, other than it not com- completely clicking for me, I thought everything here is executed perfectly, and it's very strange. And based on this first issue, I have no idea where this goes from here and how it stretches out 12 issues, but... Um, from this creative team, I'm, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep reading, uh, for sure. Yeah. My, my only question to this is, is this in continuity? I have no idea. Um, Batman's wearing the right costume. Um, but I, there's been so many Batman books at DC that I don't know what's in and what's out anymore. Um, especially when it comes to these 12 issue maxi series from DC, as they've been bringing these back. I know like the Superman ones for Jimmy and Lois are, I have no idea if this is, um, but this is the best I've seen Brian Hitch's art in a long time, and I think that has benefited greatly from Kevin Nolan being on Inks. On Inks. Um, it's really, I can see a lot of Kevin Nolan um, in his art, in the art here for Hitch, and I think it looks just absolutely tremendous. That first, like, kind of half-page splash of, of Batman looking over Gotham is beautiful and that could like easily be a poster but i mean warren ellis is a master of his craft brian hitch is a master kevin kevin nolan's a master this is a great great team and i'm definitely going to stick on this um but i wasn't fully blown away by it it was good but i didn't love it yeah i'm kind of in the same boat as well um you know the whole aspect of the murder and you know what's going on here is intriguing to me i mean this is kind of like the level of batman stuff that i think i enjoy you know the detective aspect of him um obviously but um yeah i think this is something that you know not so actiony but it works so i'm excited into a book with a lot of action dan uh detective comics (laughs) yes detective comics uh number 1013 so picking up with a um, Mr. Freeze arc, we get Batman tracking down, like kind of going back and tracking down the kidnappers for one of the people that Mr. Freeze was, one of the women that Mr. Freeze was taking to kind of experiment on and use to bring back his wife. And the guy pretty much gives in to batman and tells him where you know mr freeze is at and all that stuff and um he ends up tracking him down and (laughs) i gotta say um i'm not really like huge into like all the different like batman costumes or something like that i i agree i i didn't really love this part where batman breaks down the door to confront freeze and the giant like fire suit this is the second time we've seen like a giant suit like that in Tomasi's tech run. And I know I used it, I think a little bit in Batman and Robin. I don't love this because it, it, it's too close. Well, it's not even, it's just straight up like the old action figures you'd find as a kid of like, here's like fire assault Batman. Like, I don't like that. (laughs) Yeah. It just, it just felt a little too over the top. I think, um, I, I love it. I think it's amazing. No, no, I like it on some end, but, like, I definitely don't want this to be a norm. Like, normally when he fights Freeze, like, he's had, like, a cold suit or something that was cool. But, like, I, I, I thought this was just a smidge over the top for me. Yeah, and I guess, like, you know, if there's going to be one book that something like this is going to appear in, it probably is going to be Detective because this book is just, like, it's just that type of book to me. It feels like after reading it for these past... I don't know, six or seven months now. Well, well, it's just blending everything about Batman in this run. And, and I mean, Kamasi's just pulling from everything. He's just so good um, yeah. that you're going to get a little bit of everything. Definitely. Um, so, yeah, so pretty much the length of the book is, you know, Batman and Ice, or Iceman, Batman and Mr. Freeze fighting. And there's one point where um, Mr. Freeze freezes batman underwater and he uses his suit obviously to melt out of that and get free 
But uh, after that, Mr. Freeze is gone. But they're able to go back to the lab that Mr. Freeze abandoned to, you know, acquire his wife. If that sounds a little weird. Well, no, uh, they acquired the woman he, he kidnapped. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. My bad. Yeah. I don't think he, yeah, they didn't get the wife. But uh, what I think is funny in this, uh, in this scene here is Batman is like wearing his costume still. And, <laughs> um, shit. It's Alfred. Alfred. How do I not know that? Alfred is wearing a flash, um, mask, which I think is funny. And, and he's like, why are we wearing this? He's like, these people don't know who we are. Like we can't just let them know. Yeah. It's very similar to in Batman the Mated Series where Batman rescues the Freeze henchmen and then they bring him back to the Batcave, but they blindfold him so they don't know that Batman's Bruce Wayne. Yeah, so I thought that was kind of kind of cool. And then the last scene we have here in this issue is Mr. Freeze kind of going back to this other lab that he had and using the research he's done to revive wife, I believe, right? Yes. And she's saying, Victor, don't. So we'll see what that means. Yep. And, uh, yeah, I mean, like I said before, you know, this this book is pretty approachable for someone like me. And uh, I like it. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things. It was a very quick read, I will say that. It took me maybe about like five, ten minutes to read this issue. Well, there's a lot of action. Yeah, and I think the art is pretty good, too. So... What you guys think? Uh, I enjoyed it. I, I kind of shared my thoughts when I was interjecting there. But no, Detective continues to be good. I, I'm, but once again, just like Batman's Grave, liked it, didn't love it. Um, I, I just want to know how this Freeze arc is going to go because I liked the beginning of it. And now I'm just like, eh, it's kind of just another Batman Freeze fight. I, I think it's hilarious how every single issue of Tomasi's run for the past, like, 10 issues has to have a footnote explaining how it takes place before certain parts of Tom King's run (laughs) because Tom King is just telling like a 15 issue arc with an entirely different status quo for Gotham. And so nothing can take place with, well, in the next issue, we'll see that stuff takes place alongside, but Tomasi doesn't want to mess with that at the moment. It seems I really love this. We Dan kind of glossed over a little bit, the opening moments with Alfred where he giving him, as Bruce says, an Oscar-worthy worthy performance, acting as a dead henchman with a disguise and everything, and also attempting to not have his breathing as prominent. Um, I, I really love the way Tomasi uses Alfred. Yeah, um, it's it's fantastic. And I, I, lo- I love this suit because it's just so ridiculous. And he even has this heat gun. And for a second, I'm like, okay, Batman has a gun. But then it's like, oh, he's fighting undead ice zombies. But then they tear away his gun before he can even use it because he hesitates because of the gun. So we don't get to see the the, the heat rifle. Um, and, and then there's the baddest moment where he basically gets like Captain America. He gets frozen in a block of ice underwater and then just like overheats his body and like Superman chain rips out of it. And then the Flash, I actually really, really love this issue. No, it was um, good. I, I agree. Ultimately, the actual, like, freeze thing isn't, like, super, super engaging, but all the Batman stuff and the characterization, um, I'm really enjoying this front. I completely agree. So, Joker, Year of the Villain, by uh, John Carpenter wrote this. Um, I thought this was better than what I would, thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be a disaster, but... I honestly was surprised. It's really just a story of Joker as he is escaping Arkham, but this is taking place during City of Bane, and but the, it was kind of showed that Joker was one of like the police detectives during this, but maybe he just broke off and decided to do his own thing. He's Joker, so it's not totally out of the realm. But he ends up just like finding like this kid that's also escaping Arkham and just kind of dubs him his Robin as it's the sick, twisted version of Batman and Robin as he's going around in a Batman costume, just murdering people. He murders a dog at one point, which is pretty hard to watch. But the entire the entire uh, book is very like disturbing and kind of seedy, where you don't really want to read it and you kind of feel dirty for reading it. Which I thought fit the it fit the tone perfectly. And of course, it, at the end, uh, the the kid tries to get away from the Joker. 
but the Joker already figures out where he lives and where his mom's at and kidnaps his mom. And the, the guy tries to kill Joker, but he hesitates. And then Joker just kills him and goes along his business. It's like, yep, that's kind of the way it's going to go. Um, I, I like this a lot. What'd you guys think? Was there a reference to uh, death in the family at the yeah. end there? Yeah. When he yeah. beats him with the crowbar. I don't want to say I love this because I think that would be the wrong descriptor just based on the way the tone of the book. But I think this is actually my pick of the week. Um, yeah, it was in my worth, contention as well. Yeah, it's worth quickly noting that John Carpenter has is co-writing with Anthony Birch. I'm not sure who that is. Uh, Arc here is by Philip Tan. I thought the art was cool because, um, for one, it's like, as you said, it, in the art as well, it's like seedy. It's like the makeup on the Joker is never quite the same. It's always messy. He looks disturbing. I didn't like what he did um, with his lips. I didn't like the... The, the makeup on his face. I thought it was really yeah. messy and that could have been cleaned up a lot. And, and Tan does this thing where there's lots of panel borders where he used the ha ha ha. And it's very reminiscent of like, say something that Tom McFarlane used to do, like using webbing for panel borders on Spider-Man or, or chains and, and skulls for spawn. I, I really like this. And I think it, honestly, I feel like parts of this issue are kind of like what people we're expecting and fearing from the Joker movie. I know you guys haven't seen it yet, but I feel like this issue actually captures some of the like writ, like nonsensical expectations that people have for the Joker movie, but not really in a cringy way. If that makes any sense. I, know, I, I get what you're some, saying. Yeah. There are some interesting points um, that the protagonist makes about um, violence. He, he's like mentally ill. People are actually more likely to be victims of violence rather than perpetrators. But maybe that's what makes Gotham special, where in Gotham, the crazy people are the people committing the violence. The Condiment King was used pretty well here because he, he's just such a ridiculous villain that there's just like no way to put him over. So he's like Kite Man on the, the 10th level. And then the Enchant the way the Enchantress is worked in, that's actually where I was when she first popped up and we start we get the first like bit of that. That's where I thought maybe it was about to veer into cringe. Because for like half a second, the our like protagonist character, like you could definitely read this as like he becomes an incel in a way. <laughs> like that kind of attitude where like Enchantress shows up and like they make a point of the main of the like Joker's lackey, the main character, like finding her attractive and he's like, Maybe we can team up with her and we can be more than friends. And then he like gets um, self-conscious and she's like, oh, I know that look. And then Joker's like, I know what you're feeling. We're going to start an uprising and take down this woman. Um, it's kind of funny. And then and then he makes this point where he's like, the Joker's evil, but not crazy. And I'm crazy and not evil. And then, and then he kind of goes into the Scott Snyder territory where while they're fighting, the Joker switches the Batman mask onto him so that someone in a Batman mask choking him. And then he has like a, like a, uh, rejected orgasm moment. He literally said, he just it, full on it, says, do it harder. It really plays on a lot of different angles of the Joker, but it doesn't feel all over the place. It doesn't feel over the top on, in any of the arenas. I really like this. Yeah, it was, it was really good. I mean, John Carpenter's really not like a bad writer. Like he clearly knows horror. So putting him here is not, like a horrible idea i'm just i was very skeptical how the payoff was gonna be but i think the payoff was very very good i think we were joking way back about how the best case scenario for this book is that it ends up in in 10 years in a best of the joker collection but having read it i think it will be in a best of the joker collection yeah it should be i can definitely see like especially due to the one off me yeah this is going to be like an underrated uh i think find you'll find in a dollar bin or somewhere soon in the nature of today's comics and how they work but yeah de- if you find this definitely pick it up read it it was good black hammer just league number four uh this is my pick of the week um is everything's kind of coming together and going crazy on this uh jeff lemire michael walsh um uh, we got our black hammer characters fighting outside the hall of justice uh looking for golden gale who's then turned back into her normal form the specter shows up um, and it's trying to take down Zatanna for using banned magic. While the Trinity and Cyborg are in the Black Hammer universe, trying to fi- uh, repairing Takiwaki to figure out what the hell's going on. And then in the fifth dimension, that's which 
this is the key to all this. We figure out with Colonel Weird and the Flash and Green Lantern who's behind all of these multiverse shenanigans, and it's none other than Mr. Mixix-Pitalik, who's making the lives hell for the Black Hammer characters and the DC Justice League. So everything's coming together here, and as the Trinity finds the uh, the the Black Hammer as Batman's like, look at it to pick it up. Um, they get assaulted by all of the monsters that are kept in Madame Dragonfly's house. So they have to fight there. Um, and then we leave this issue with everything about to be kind of go kablooey with uh, Mixie putting his final plans of his final plans into motion here. This was really, really fun. Great reveal for Mixie to be the villain behind of all this and how this all fits together um, makes it really, really fun. And then Michael Walsh's artwork just completely beautiful as always i love this series vince i think you'll really like this when it's all said and done when you finally get around to reading black hammer yeah i kind of missed the the takeoff uh a bit so i'll just read and trade when i read through more black hammer but yeah this this amazing how good and seamless uh mixies just entered in here and it works totally uh buffy and angel hellmouth number one the giant crossover is taken off um this is jordy belair and jeremy lambert eleonora carlini chris peter the worst thing about this is that joss whedon's name is listed at the top of this he has nothing to do with this book other than just being listed as creator so i think there's a little bit of a false advertisement there because with his name being at the top i thought he was going to do at least something with this but no it's it's belair which is fine because the book been good um I think Carlini's art is much better than the main art that's been on the Buffy book, and hopefully they become the the main artist on Buffy after this. But uh, Drusilla's open the Hellmouth as everything's going crazy, and Buffy's trying to save her friends who are at the high school Halloween dance, um, trying to make sure that her friends are okay and her mom got out safe with Giles and Jenny Callender. Um, and eventually they, her and her friends all meet up in the library and then Angel comes in um, and he's looking for like a spell book that they have to go to. And eventually the conclusion is, hey, we got to jump into this portal to hell to uh, to save the day. And we get our first face-to-face meeting between Angel and Buffy, which I think is your, being a Buffy fan, you've been waiting for. It's been teased like three times now, but now they're fully, you know what? Buffy runs into like, and sees one of her classmates dead uh, in the main gym where the dance was kind of knowing what the stakes are at this point for her. Um, but yeah, they jump into the hell portal and they're going to have to fight a bunch of monsters. This has been pretty fun. Uh, it's going to go through the Buffy and Angel books and we're going to see if this event lasts too long, which is, this is five issues and then it's going to be issues that also tie into their respective books. So we'll see if I get like event fatigue from this, but still the Buffy line at boom continues to be good. So we'll see how it ends up going. On the Whedon point. It just kind of brought to mind a, a similar comparison that um, his name wasn't really on, you know, it's not like his name was on the top of the covers, but Neil Gaiman got like some kind of editor credit for anything related to Sandman for like a decade and got paid for them, but re- like in practical terms didn't do shit. And then eventually he was like, yeah, this doesn't make any sense. So he gave it up. Yeah, so Coffinbound number three, I'm going to be honest, I have no idea what's going on anymore, but in the very end of the issue, someone literally just strips off all their skin. So if you're a body horror person, check out this issue, cut out the last page and put it over your bed or something. I don't know. This is a very strange book. You're going to stay with it or are you jumping off? I might drop it. I don't know. The one thing I'll say, the one thing I will say is the, the artist for the series, Danny Strips, um, whatever she goes by amazing 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 artists i'll definitely gonna be watching what they're going to be doing next um i don't know this doesn't actually like there's no actual significant connection but danny strips from this series and marie lavette from faithless two series that weren't really my cup of tea not really my vibe but the art the art from two artists that i was previously not that familiar with really really into both of their art and excited to see them on other stuff i don't necessarily want or hope um and that they'll that they're gonna move over to superheroes or something i don't think their style fits that i don't know that they necessarily want to do that but excited to see where they go next that's coffin bound all right so transitioning back to marvel we get into dr doom 
number one. So the first issue of the 2019 ongoing series for Dr. Doom. And I know a lot of us on this podcast were excited to finally read this issue. And we open with this project that's being explained. I think it's called Antlion. Antlion, I don't know how you pronounce it. And it's pretty much a like greenhouse conserving like project that is basically like a black hole that sucks stuff through the dark side of the moon and like takes all the greenhouse gases from the earth to like the dark side of the moon shoots it through a black hole it's really weird anyway and they're like if we do this we can reduce the temperature of the planet we can save on pollution all that stuff and they bring dr doom on to kind of get his personal take on this whole project. And he's just like, this is not going to work. This is going to spell destruction. And the people are like, well, what do you know? So we then go to, we then pan back to Latveria, where we just get brought up to speed, I guess, on the state of Latveria at this point with Dr. Doom, kind of walking through, dictating to some of his, you know, people below him. And then, you know, we also kind of see the guy, you know, the generous side of him, you know, with his Latverian people and, how he looks after them, which is always the dichotomy of him with this uh, this country that he founded. So we then pan back later to, later that night to Doctor Doom, kind of sitting in, sitting in his study where he's visited by Kane the Conqueror. They kind of discuss a little bit about the Antlion project and you know what's going to happen with it in the future and all that stuff. And then we kind of go towards this i'll say you know and you guys could probably comment on this as we go along here but i feel like this issue jumps around a lot in terms of like what it's establishing and it's a little disjointed in some areas i think um because we we get we pan to like this scene where doc like victor von doom's kind of like sitting with like his family and his children and I, i'm pretty sure that's like a mirage and then we kind of opening a door to the dark side of the moon so that's a little bit of foreshadowing i guess and then we, you know, go back to the reality, and Doctor Doom has actually kidnapped one of the news casters that like shit on him earlier in the in the story, which I think is a little crazy. And I'm not sure if we're supposed to like laugh at that or what. Doctor Doom's crazy, Dan. Weird. What do you mean? <laughs> I know. Well, I'm just saying, like, it's just a weird way to, I guess, inject humor into this book. And then we get another kind of like flashback of like Victor with this child his name's Costin. i mean Vic, vince can probably talk more about this as we, as we go along here but the last no, that's just that's just still his like uh fantasy or or whatever that, that it's just one of the children from the previous yeah. scenes okay so it's nothing really um real so the last thing we kind of get here is the antlion i don't know how you pronounce it antlion project actually gets like like terrorized by these terrorists like they actually end up sending like missiles and blowing up parts of the the project on the moon and you know we see these like purple and gray robots emerge and it's like a newscast so i don't know what's happening here um i mean there's a lot of stuff here and I'm kind of excited to see what where it goes. Salvador LaRocca are pretty familiar with it. I thought it was pretty solid. In some some points, some areas, it's a little more cringy. But um, overall, I thought it was pretty good art. So what did you guys think? I'm wondering how you forget to mention the part where when we get back to reality, missiles are launched on the Antlion facility and... It makes it with in the name of Latveria, so every country in the world comes after Doom. So he's t he ends up fighting Agent Zero and uh, Union Jack, and he just surrenders because he knows he's going to get taken down. So he has to now clear his name. Oh shoot, I forgot that. I do like like when Kang yeah, just showed up, like Kang like What's Doom it? is just like I do like when Kang showed up. Doom's just like I'm growing tired of this. Like stop messing with me, please. Yeah, I'm wondering how, like, this whole mirage is going. I think it's dealing with something how Kang is traveling back, because they've hinted that something's broken on Kang. But I do like this a lot. It's, it's really having fun with Doom in a really cool way. I think uh, Christopher Cantwell's gets... Definitely he understands Doctor Doom as a character, so 
this has kind of been like a, a sleeper hit because we didn't really know what to expect from this. And it's been a very good book, uh, at least for the first issue. A solid first issue, and I definitely am intrigued and want to keep reading more. But Vince is the more resident Fantastic Four guy who has read more Fantastic Four than I have by a long margin. Uh, what did you think of this? I mean, I don't have a ton to add on, on you know, the Fantastic Four realm. But yeah, I agree. Um, I didn't have, I mean, I didn't really know anything about this going in. I didn't have high expectations. There's like a low-key miniseries which is going on right now too. I think it's basically wrapping up possibly this week. And like the premise of that and everything and what little I've seen, I had like zero interest in that. And there was a previous low-key miniseries not too long ago. Um, so for some reason, and just like subconsciously, I'm like, okay, this is going to be like that. Here's some writer who doesn't write that many comics. I'm not. I'm not sure about Christopher Cantwell's uh, backstory. He may be like comics, comic, comics, but I don't recognize his name. So it's like, okay, this is going to be some filler trash to pump out in the miniseries. But I was really impressed. This is. It, I think it's a runner up for me for pick of the week behind Joker. But I enjoyed it. Laroca. I think it helps that the main character wears a mask, so you don't get into the territory of likenesses and uncanny valley though there's a little bit of that with the tv anchors um in the first few pages yeah doom his characterization is really great i like how doom doom and kang they're handled very well their characterization but also like they're allowed to have fun but it's also not campy yeah um it's kind of like the the best bone for marvel comics uh, superhero comics for me um because I don't, I don't like writers that try and make it funny or cute and go too over the top. Bendis, Jason Aaron, they do a little bit of that. And I also don't like writers that take everything way too seriously and are, are afraid of the fun. And yeah, I think this is, it's, it's a really interesting kind of um, corner to put Doom in where, and where he literally resorts to that point. He's like total and unconditional surrender. And then really he's just like toying with Union Jack. And also, he doesn't want to get beat up and stuff, but he was ready to surrender. And then these jerks are like, you know, they want the headline, you could argue. I love this. Somehow, this is Doctor Doom Volume 1. Yeah. Which is slightly interesting to me. Though Doctor Doom has starred in solo books before, um, he had two miniseries by Chuck Dixon in the early 2000s, but they were just called Doom. And then there's Ed Brubaker's kind of forgotten work, which desperately need to be reprinted at some point books of doom um for the mid 2000s and then of course doom 2099 i was gonna say that's the big one 44 a big chunk of which written by warren ellis and in fact if you don't if you didn't know doom 2099 is actually 616 doom due to time uh time travel shenanigans and stuff like that something that has stopped being solid and i just want it to be over event leviathan number five (laughs) bendis and maleve Thank God Maliv is doing art on this that's beautiful because I just don't care anymore. <laughs> I was the lone person defending this and now I just, it almost has like go away heat for me. I just want it to be over. Because you'd think by issue five we'd know who Leviathan is and we still don't really know who it is by the end of this. We have like a solid lead. Even like take a moment to like stop and be like, hey, guess what? It's not Maxwell Lord. Most of the internet thinks it's Maxwell Lord, but it's not. So it's just like Bendis toying with who this person is going to be and like stretching it out even further but you got lois lane who runs into this other group of detectives who's also still talking to the group of detectives we have and they're all basically leading their evidence is heavily hinted that general sam lane is definitely part of leviathan in the very least somewhere and it's she goes and talks to him and is like, yeah, I, I know I was with them. Um, and then like a giant shootout happens and everything gets even more confusing. Batman's and then they get like transported to like the Himalayan mountains somewhere as Sam Lane's dying. And then Superman and Plastic Man are like in Leviathan headquarters and figuring out where it is there. And then we're go- cut back to the detectives, Batman, Manhunter, question Green Arrow, Jason Todd's still hanging out with them, Damien's there. We're all, like, trying to work it out, and they all look at, and Damien looks at Kate Spencer Manhunter with her staff, and it's like, hey, this technology is similar to Leviathan technology. Are you the only one who has it? And she's like, no, all the Manhunters have it. And it's where, like, they're putting it together that 
the manhunt that maybe the original manhunter is leviathan which by this point i just don't care anymore i want it to be over i we should have found out who this was a lot earlier and then batman's like giant truck is just like stopped by talia al ghul who's like hey i'm here now and also let's go take down leviathan so i was like i i don't care anymore just have it be over there's one more issue this story's gone on too long yeah so this is what i meant by bendis being too cute where yep. there's the Maxwell Lord part, and then there's also a joke about Constantine looking like Sting, which I don't really like acknowledging. But the thing is, it's not it's not really hinted that it's the original Manhunter. It's hinted that it could be it could be a Manhunter, but that's entirely a futile. Well, it's basically a pointless thing. It's a remotely a reveal because Manhunters. You've got Paul Kirk, Dan Richards, Mark Shaw. The clone of Paul Kirk, Chase Lawler, Kirk DePaul, and Manhunter 2070. And it's post-Flashpoint, and 90% of those characters have never shown up in this continuity. So hypothetically, every single one could be alive. It could be any of them. Um, And then, of course, there's the whole Manhunters kind of cosmic um, Green Lantern-related type deal. Yeah. So this is... the reveal is going to be, and I, I guess it's it's got to be six issues. I don't, I don't remember. I don't really like. I just, I don't even know if I have it in me to read the next one if it weren't the final one because, like, I don't. I mean, the Malieve art looks fine, but even still, I don't know how much of this is him and how much of his Bendis. But like, some of the pacing and the storytelling isn't clear to me, and I just, I don't care. The worst part about this is because we have to wait for the other Superman books to catch up. Like, you know, like, even after this series is over, like, there's going to be, like, two issues overrun of Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen still dealing with this bullshit. And I'm just so, I'm so done with it. I want it to be over. The other thing is, so, again, with things being unclear, I don't think Sam Lane died in this issue. No, but he's near death, though. I'm not, it would also be great if Bendis does not kill Sam Lane. Because that's a major Superman character. There's no reason to kill him. It's a shitty story. Well, Don't also, Bendis is just, like, ignoring what happened in Jurgen's action comics. In Action 999, uh, right before 1000, like, Sam Lane made peace with Clark and, like, wants to, like, have a relationship with Clark and Lois and get to know his grandson and John. Because uh, they have sit down for a dinner in that that's the final issue before Bendis took over. And I was like, yeah, why is Sam Lane bad again? He made peace with, with Clark and Lois and is going to make an effort to be a grandfather to Jonathan Kent. It, it's just like him always ignoring continuity like he always has. And it's now overstaying its welcome where like the grace period of him being at DC is completely over for me. And I'm just like, yep, yeah, you, you're just ruining the Superman books at this point. Talking about things that are getting ruined. Hawkman number 17 so he's in the Shadowlands. He's fighting Shadow Thief, who uses Hawkman's own shadow against him. That's cool. So they fight each. They, he's fighting his own shadow, and it's kind of cool. But the, his shadow also acts as a voodoo doll. So he's basically fighting a version of himself, but also when he hits himself, he's hitting himself. So he's just totally fucked, and he can't do much. And then I'm not 100% certain what happens here. Um, it might be because I didn't read the entire beginning of the series, so I don't know like how his mace works now. But he has a moment where he's like on the ground, he's like defeated, and then he like similar to like the way that Thor like wreath summons Mjolnir and stuff like that. He like manipulates the mace, and then the mace just goes smashes into Shadow Thieves' back, and then he wins. I don't. It's kind of anticlimactic. I'm not really certain what was going on, um, but that's how it works. And then he crushes some device which Shadow Thief was using to help him, and his shadow comes back, shades his shadow back, and then Hawkman almost kills Shadow Thief, but Shade stops him, and Shade's like, you got something going on. And Hawkman's like, I got something going on. And then there's like a snap and silhouette panels, and suddenly he is sky tyrant and this is some man who laughs garbage so i'm not sure how many issues this series is going to take to tie into this stupid batman who laughs infected arc but um 
not excited about that. And also the design looks awful. He has like, it's like this weird, like wood looking mask that covers his entire face. It's like a wicker man type of thing. It's, it's really dumb. But that's Hawkman. This issue up until the last page was enjoyable. I feel like this show started really hot with us being happy and with each book we're just getting angrier and more bitter <laughs> like, like there's been like a dip in happiness as the show's gone all right invaders number 10 i would I, this isn't a this isn't a sour spot for me though not, um, not for me whereas, either whereas previous issues i was a lot more apprehensive and critical about this series we open with a very brief flashback sequence by butch guys the in world war ii the next advance is a, is a little bit off so Everyone is basically on shore leave. Cap's like, where's Bucky? And it's like, he went home. And Steve, I think it's actually an interesting idea presented here where Steve is afraid to go back to Brooklyn because he thinks it might change like his spirit in the battlefield. And so Namor's like, hey, hit your ride with me. And so he gives him a tour of Atlantis. And Steve's like, wow, this is cool. And then we get to the present where Steve and Bucky are in Atlantis and now transformed into Atlanteans. And it does point out it's that, yeah, Bucky is missing an arm because he's not going to take his metal arm underwater because everyone will recognize him. And so he's at a disadvantage. And all, along the way, they rescue Hydro-Man very quickly. I don't know if Hydro-Man is going to come back up in this series. Kind of feels like just a subplot to use two issues and then show a bit of characterization as far as Steve, like, rescuing villains and stuff and namor shows up too he's now split from Macan, or however you pronounce his name and in all the all the chaos roxon agents get away with the compound and then torch and toro are getting messed around by Macan, and steve gets on his suit and it's cool because for a while he's in the captain america suit but he still has the blue skin and he's like, he has like a water breathing apparatus. Yeah. Just kind of cool. And then he gets in like a, he gets in the middle of something. It's both him and Namor in the middle of the Roxxon folks. And then they, Steve essentially like gases like the, uh, the cure. And then they jump in the water and then they're stranded on an island. And that's where the issue ends. And I think this issue ends with Namor is a human. Yeah, they well while Steve's so, trying to escape, the the gunfire hits the compound, which caused it to explode, and Namor and Captain America were both caught in the middle of it. So Namor's a human now. Which I'm sure I'm guessing that'll get reversed. Well yeah, it will, but um, it's an interesting development how to end how to end this and spin it though. And I'll also note, I believe somewhere off panel, Bucky is still Atlantean. Yeah, so he's still... obviously we'll have to get back to that. Yeah. But now, now that Namor and Makan have split, I'm a lot more... I'm a lot more... I'm less anxious about reading this series. And uh, as I've said, even on the previous issues, um, Zdarsky and Carlos Magno and definitely Butch Geist are doing really good work on this series. I thought this was a much stronger issue from Magno recently, uh, especially with the water effects and all of the sea creatures. I thought that was really, really strong here. Um, Butch Geis is art, even though it was like only like two pages and that opening sequence with Cap and Namor looked amazing as it always does. Um, I do wish like he was drawing all of this, but it's just not feasible. But Magno's art, I thought, was brought up a little bit here, as I thought it would lack the last couple of issues. But uh, I'm looking forward to Cap and Namor on a deserted island in the next issue. All right, so quickly going to talk about Spawn number 301. Guys, it's record-breaking. 27 years, Todd has realized everything is now he owns the longest creator-owned comic of all time. Um, the issue itself, um, this is the last issue of Spawn I'm reading. Uh, I stayed on through 300 in this. Um, the new status quo is set up as Spawn is now publicly known as Al Simmons, and we have other people with like Hellspawn symbiotes uh, showing up. The, the counter fully reach for Spawn's powers fully reaches zero, but it's realized that like that was just like a countdown that all the hell demons put in place because they were scared of Spawn ever reached it because Spawn can control the symbiote, um, but he pulled out off a giant explosion to kill Ca- Clown and them. So he has to like wait for his powers to come back. But now he's getting like confronting all these demons and kind of conf- like just like exposing these government conspiracies and covered up cover ups. Uh, 
Todd draws like the first four page of this, pages of this, and it looks great. Uh, Jason Sean Alexander's art still continues to be pretty cool looking and very horror filled uh, with the book. And then Clayton Crane does the last four pages of this, and that looks good too. Um, as spawns continuing to fight these devil creatures. Um, uh, as we enter in this new era of spawn status quo with these other spawns popping up, so it looks like there's going to be more than just Al Simmons from now on. Um, but Al Simmons is still going to be the main character. But hey, congrats to Todd. 27 years, longest creator-owned book. Um, went th over thousands of pages, hundreds of characters, dozens of creators, seven, in seven image partners, and three decades, and one record. So from June 1992 to October of 2019, applaud Todd McFarlane on Spawn. Yeah, he, he beat the record of Cerebus. He could have just canceled it right now. He could have pulled a pulled a Walking Dead. Just imagine in your head if there was a Young Blood 301, <laughs> a, uh, a Wildcats 301. Savage Dragon will get there. Though. I love the visual he put in the back of this, where it's where he shows his daughter in 1992 to now, and it's like she's just fully grown. That's how to show the scope of time it took. I thought that was pretty funny. I was gonna say it's worth noting none of us were alive when Spawn Number One came out. No, I was I was born at 95. Dan, I th are we all 95? You're 94. But like it is like it is a huge moment for at least in comics history that like you move past like 300 issues is nothing to sniff at it it's a very pretty big celebration I know like Todd our love of Todd is a little bit of a meme but I it's definitely an accomplishment that should be noted yeah, I think it's awesome yeah I, I think it's great especially knowing that like he's the one image. Uh, founder that has never really gone back to the big two and to him have that record i think it means more but wonder twins number eight mark russell continues to be great it's the high school reunion as the wonder twins are planning that and the high school principal used to have a fling with the librarian who they went to school together and now they've grown up to be the principal and the librarian of the respected school which i think is kind of funny and it's all about the principal not wanting to like face the past because uh, he regrets breaking up with her and wants to it's kind of like longing for the life he possibly could have had. Um, meanwhile, uh, and really should have just, he wanted to apologize, which is all juxtaposed with Jaina wanting to apologize to Polly Math, who is in the juvenile detention center because of what happened in the first part of the series where she became a villain. And it's all about confronting and apologizing then and not waiting, which I thought was, I, I mean, it's a pretty good message to uh, that what Russell has here. And I do think that it's hilarious that the detention center is called Prison Kids with a Z. And it's just, and if you're wondering, it is a subsidiary of Lexicon Prisons. The, the humor with Lex Luthor owning everything in the DC universe continues to be like really, really funny. And like the, the only person like the, on the approved visitors page for Polly, it's everyone except Jaina. So like, Jane has to find a way to talk to Polly because she believes that her dad, who she believes is dead, is still alive. The humor continues to be good here. Like, it's the 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 theme of the high school reunion is a casino night. So Zan ends up becoming, like, a head of a casino and, um, and takes his friends to make sure that no one's winning too much. And that one of the uh, people at the, at the reunion has won, like, four hands of blackjack in a row. So they, like, take him to a back room and shake him down, which I really thought was funny. The dude's trying to win this ceramic dog. And uh, they, they break the ceramic dog in front of him to break him to sh expose that he's cheating. Like, the humor continues to be there. This is a really, really fun series. And I'm excited to go where it goes because Jaina does get to Polly at the end of this and does reveal that, hey, I'm sorry, and I think your dad's still alive, and I think we can help. So continues to be one of the best books DC's publishing. Russell and Norton, great. Into our last book this week, Powers of X. Going to close things now, Powers of X number six, and this is the final part of the Hox Pox saga. I want to just quickly, since I missed last week, and I'm usually the X-Men guy, House of X number six. Uh, read that obviously. I thought it was it was pretty good. Uh, these last two issues kind of ramped up in certain ways. The last issue I feel got a lot of buzz on social media. Lots of people were sharing certain panels. There's the moment where essentially Nightcrawler is like, "Hey, uh, I'd say we all got to have a lot of sex." So it becomes orgy time. Not not literally on the panels, but implied essentially. And they all have a bunch of cans of beer. So now, Powers of X number six, the final... Why don't they just get a couple of kegs? Why do they only have cans of beer? Or do you think, I don't know, Kirkoa could do something for them? Who knows? But the, the, one, the, the critical thing I'll say about Powers of X number six, 
is that in the in in the beginning and at the very end, like literally like a fifth of this book is recycled pages, though there's different scripting all over that. But we pick up with the year one thousand, and the librarian character is chatting with Wolverine and Mora, and the idea is basically that machines simply are like a a side attraction to the inevitable. And the idea is that engineering, whether it's whether it's in the traditional like mechanical sense with sentinels and stuff, or bioengineering, is fa- in a way it's faster than evolution. So humans, like for example, Cap- Captain America or other more major examples, have superpowers, but they're not mutants. And so, in that sense, humans, once they reach a certain threshold and everything they can actually surpass mutants because they can be faster than evolution or, or whatever. That's the idea. And aided by machines. And so kind of the essence there is that mutants always lose. That's the message here. And Logan, and they come to this conclusion and there's stuff going on. And so Logan stabs Mora and that ends for six life. So that year 1000 was her six life, which I feel like is weird because I feel like seven through nine, I don't remember the exact status quo for them, but I feel like it would, they, whatever it is, it would be weird if those are after the sixth life, but whatever. So then the present is her 10th life. And so she's actually alive and seen her much in present time. And so she's like, she has a secret room on Krakoa and she's, she's essentially hidden because if she dies, that fucks everything up. And she's conspiring or and consulting with Charles and Matt and Eric. And the one wrinkle here is that Mystique is a member of their little council. And as part of her joining, they made her a promise of destiny. And they can't fulfill that, or at least not for a while. So that'll probably come up uh, down the line next major arc. Um, on the Hickman side, I guess it ends with Magneto coming to the closet. That was my takeaway. I'm just joking. But I thought House of X number six was more interesting to me than this. I thought this ending was a little anticlimactic, but that's just the nature of it because this entire 12 issue story was actually just a prologue. I mean, we I kind of figured that it. it was laying the groundwork for what the crux of this run is going to be about. Um, I thought it was really, really damn good, but coming out of it, like, they're villains, right? Like, they're bad guys. Well, I don't know about that, but it's it's definitely complicated, and it'll be interesting to see what they actually do in ongoing like books that require villains and stuff. Yeah. Because there are no mutant villains that they're fighting. Yeah. Unless any of them go rogue. But yeah, the the dawn of X, as they're calling this wave of books. Starts literally next week. Yep, X Men number one. We're probably gonna be. We'll we'll see. I, I'm probably gonna stick with. I'm gonna try out probably every single thing, and we'll see which ones I stick with. I don't expect you guys to dive in quite as as much as me, obviously. Well, I I've selected um, which ones I'm reading. I'm gonna read. Yeah. I'm gonna read X Men and Excalibur. The one question I'll quickly ask is at over New York Comic Con, Marvel finally announced a Wolverine. Real Wolverine returning to an ongoing series for the first time in like literally four plus years. And it's Benjamin Percy and Adam Kubert. Do you guys have any very quick thoughts? Yay or nay or, or like in the middle? Um, I mean, it's, I mean, it's eventful because he's been dead. He was dead for a lot longer than I thought he actually would be. And like, I'm guessing like that Charles soul mini, one where he had hot claws just doesn't count as a run then but i'll probably read the first issue and then I'm, i don't feel like i'll stick with it but i'm just when i saw the initial announcement as i read the the article i was like oh they're just gonna announce that this charles soul still on wolverine um but i was i was like actually oh okay i was happy to see ben percy on it just because it is someone new um Hubert on art i feel like it's gonna be hit or miss especially in 2019 we'll see how it goes um, I'll at least read the first issue. Yeah, kind of same here. You gonna read any of the X Men books, or are you still nah? I'm gonna read them in trade. All right, that's my plan. All right, so tune in next week, and we will report on the beginnings of Dawn of X and whatever other exciting books are out. You know, there's probably another Batman book that comes out every week. <laughs> I think Batman literally is. I think Batman eighty one is next week. 
Um, what's right, yo? Thanks for watching this episode. We gotta watch. We gotta do the the, the retro book. The retro book. I, I ran the RNG, and it's gonna be Resurrection Man number one million. <laughs> which, to be honest, uh, we're probably getting off lucky there because it was an annual. So, Oof. Uh, be easier for a read. I just want to stay. I just want to have the record show that my choices beat Dan's now twice in a row. Dan, I, I want to quickly note because I don't think you know anything that we're talking about. Resurrection Man is Dan Abner and Andy Lanny. Just that far. Oh, yeah, let's go. Um, so it, it shouldn't be complete trash, but tune in to see what we think of that and various other books next week. Thanks for watching this one. Have a good night. All right, and that is our show for this week. Thanks again for listening. We appreciate it always. Just give it always that play when you see it popping on Spotify. It'd be greatly appreciated. Looking ahead to next week, we have Aquaman, Batman, Justice League. Vince is going to be reading Metal Men. Superman Smashes the Clan come out. We got three Superman books this week. Marvel, Absolute Carnage, Captain America, His Marvel Universe, X-Men number one, which you mentioned. And of course, we got that Resurrection Man, one million for our retro book. It should all be really, really fun next week. Hope you come back and listen to that one. It's a later week of books, but I think it's still a pretty good week of books. I know we're all looking forward to it. Thank you. Have a good weekend, and let's get out of here.